I do not know, comrade, why you suspected you were flying in friendly skies. You will sit and shut up and take meal when we deliver it. <laughs> I'm doing my best Boris Badenoff impression. Anyway, yeah, it's nice to know that, uh, you know, I actually did fly on a reverse flight. I flew once from Irkutsk, Siberia to Moscow. And I'm here to tell you, the uh, Aeroflot at that time was not up to Western standards. <laughs> and uh, the evidence would suggest, based on that last news item, that uh, they still have a ways to go. I do want to state for the record, though, that I was served food on my flight and was not beaten up. We did have who I believe was a KGB agent sitting next to us on the flight. He he looked uncomfortable. He was wearing a suit. He he looked like he looked like a you know a G man, their equivalent of a federal agent. And um, he, you know it was that we were the only Americans flying from Irkutsk to Moscow. This is 1991. I don't suppose that was very common. And I don't know whether they have air marshals on every flight in uh, in Russia. But I figure if they were going to put him next to somebody, we'd be the people that, uh, you know, would be uh, under suspicion, i.e. persons of interest. Uh, at one point, I did break out the map, a uh, map that I had, an atlas of, of Russia, and started asking him questions about the geography we were flying over. And he looked really startled that I was, was going to talk to him. He wanted to just be an intimidating presence. And he offered, you know, minimal help, but I'm, I'm still pretty sure he was a KGB guy. Of course, that's just a guess. My, my, my Russian was worse than, than rudimentary, and his English was about the same. But uh, speaking of spies, or possible spies, in Washington, D.C., one of the major tourist attractions which has opened up recently is the Spy Museum, which is not far from the, the Capitol building. Uh, it is an interesting uh, display of, uh, of spy craft, various spy stories, us versus them, spy versus spy. They can't resist putting a lot of, uh, of, of popular culture embedded into it. You know, Maxwell Smart talking on a shoe, uh, James Bond, uh, this, uh, Secret Agent Man, uh, the old uh, TV show, black and white TV show from the 60s. Uh, for my part, I couldn't resist buying a spy pen, uh, a pen that writes in invisible ink. It's a little pen, a little, little, little pen light that, uh, that lights up uh, as a black light, ultraviolet. And allows you to then read secret messages. Now, uh, <laughs> I wanted the, I wanted the little portable pen light to for various. Um, well, I have my reasons. It'll help you if you're buying gems. It'll help you in, in medicine on occasion. It's it's got some uses. But anyway, it was a very handy little item to have. I don't expect to be writing a whole lot of spy messages. But it was it was very strange. Uh, I don't know. It, it, it's a very popular museum, and I would recommend that you check it out if you go to Washington D.C. It's not far from the Smithsonian. But it was a very interesting, subtle spin that they put on everything. That um, um, you know, the world of espionage, the good guys and the bad guys, who's wearing the white and black hats, isn't always so clear. You can buy up uh, books like the, the Art of War, I believe it was being sold, which talks about how important it is for any nation. This is a book written by um, um, a Chinese man, something like, what, 1000 BC? A long, long time ago, at least, at least two millennia ago, about how important it is for any nation to maintain uh, espionage agents, how, in fact, that's the most important uh, uh, fact of the art of statecraft, to know what your opponents are doing, and uh, will allow you to learn and, and, uh, and advance without actually having to use military forces. 
Uh, spying has always uh, been with us. Spies will always be with us. And uh, I, I do hope that at least um, as the art is practiced for the benefit of you and I, uh, the, the citizen in the U.S., that, um, you know, that um, we'll go about it with as clean a hands as possible. Now, in another issue related to uh, espionage, Ahmed Chalabi, once the, uh, the darling of the neoconservatives to become the leader of Iraq, has apparently been associated with the Iranians and with uh, selling data and passing data to the, the government of Iran. And he's fallen from favor. In fact, in the past two weeks, he has now been uh, come under indictment. He's been indicted for counterfeiting, and his nephew, Salim Chalabi, who was head of the special tribunal in charge of trying Saddam Hussein, uh, faced an arrest warrant for murder. Chalabi, of course, was the mastermind behind uh, the idea that Iraq had to be debathified. In other words, anyone in the police, anyone in the military, anyone associated with the ruling party had to be purged from the intelligence and, uh, and civil authority and military institutions, which meant that um, quickly things have fallen apart in Iraq, and it's basically become a hotbed uh, for uh, Islamic fundamentalism, something Iraq never was under the authoritarian rule of Saddam Hussein, a dictator who ruthlessly suppressed Islamic fundamentalist movements whenever and uh, wherever they arose. So Chalabi uh, talked our government into basically uh, dismantling the, uh, all of the, uh, the infrastructure of Iraq that kept order so that he could put all of his people in place. And, uh, I have to quote from him on today's show because in the wake of him being, uh, you know, indicted for um, counterfeiting, he said the following, quote, referring to the judge who signed the warrant. He has consistently attempted to manipulate the justice system for political purposes noting that the judge Zuhair al-Maliki is not a bona fide Iraqi judge, but rather an unqualified person who was put in his position by the American occupation authorities. Well, I would say when it comes to knowing something about an unqualified person put in his position by the American occupation authorities, we'll say one thing about Ahmed Chalabi. That's an area he should know in great detail. All right, I'm, trying to, I'm going to try and get a hold of our general manager, Steve Valentino, to talk a little bit about Washington, get his, uh, his uh, perspective on uh, the trip that uh, found both of us in our nation's capital um, a couple weeks back. While we're putting that call in, I do want to note uh, something that just irks the heck out of me. This, uh, this thing they were still selling in the um, American History uh, Smithsonian. Uh, this thing about the amazing coincidences between the assassinations of Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy. This is such a bunch of bunk. Uh, you know, I just, it, just, it just won't go away. Abe Lincoln was elected to Congress in 1846. JFK was elected to Congress in 1946. Lincoln was elected president in 1860. Kennedy was elected president in 1960. The names Lincoln and Kennedy each contain seven letters. Both presidents were shot in the head on a Friday. Both wives lost their children while living in the White House. You know, this is, this is such, it's such nonsense. One of, one of Lincoln's, I think maybe even more than one of his children, died during his term as president. And Jackie Kennedy lost a newborn infant while, uh, while uh, Kennedy was president. But I mean, <laughs> uh, these are such stretchers. 
I mean, yes, there are some coincidences here, but is this really that remarkable? Both were succeeded by Southerners named Johnson. Okay, that's a coincidence. We've had two President Johnsons, and they when they follow these two men respectively. But, you know, Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Lincoln, was born in 1808. Lyndon Johnson, who succeeded Kennedy, was born in 1908. I don't know. Uh, can we just choose presidents at random and see how they would connect up? Actually, I did find a website that had amazing differences between John F. Kennedy and Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> Things like, Lincoln was an Illinois state legislator who, outside of his election to a single term in the House, failed in every attempt to gain national political office until he was elected president. Kennedy, on the other hand, enjoyed an unbroken string of political successes at the national level when he entered politics after World War II. Or how about this? Kennedy has a middle name, Fitzgerald, while Lincoln had none. Lincoln, born in 1809. Kennedy, born in 1917. <laughs> Lincoln died in 1865. Kennedy died in 1963. Probably my favorite of all is that, you know, these coincidences people claim, you know, both men were particularly concerned with civil rights. Well, <laughs> to say that they're both particularly concerned with civil rights is like saying that Woodrow Wilson and FDR were both particularly concerned with war, or that Herbert Hoover or Ronald Reagan were both particularly concerned with economics. I don't know. I, I should leave this subject alone, but it just is always, it's irked the hell out of me for decades, so I'm going off on it a bit. Okay, a couple more. John Wilkes Booth ran from the theater in which he shot Lincoln and was caught in a warehouse. Lee Harvey Oswald ran from a warehouse and then was caught in a theater. Well, he didn't show... Okay, okay. First of all, there's some doubt as to whether Lee Harvey Oswald was the assassin of, of John F. Kennedy. I mean, that's reasonable cause for doubt there. But, you know, he didn't shoot Kennedy in a warehouse. He supposedly shot from a warehouse. And although while John Wilkes Booth did shoot in a theater, he was caught in a barn. He was shot in a barn, not a warehouse. Now, technically, I guess a barn is a warehouse, but holy mackerel. All right, I, I imagine you're sick of hearing about this by this point, but let me just close with what Wags, who like to make fun of this whole Kennedy-Lincoln uh, thing, uh, like to quote. This is not strictly speaking true, but it's a pretty good line with which to close it. According to these people... A month before Lincoln was assassinated, he was in Monroe, Maryland. A month before Kennedy was assassinated, he was in Marilyn Monroe. All right, we've got a hold of him now. So joining us is uh, KDVS's own uh, general manager, Stephen Valentino. Steve. Good evening, Doug. Uh, you're out on assignment? Yes, I am. I'm up in Chico uh, on assignment at my parents' house right now. Okay, well, fair enough. <laughs> well, I was telling our audience, I don't know whether you've been listening, but I was talking to our audience about uh, the trip to Washington, D.C. that found uh, you and I uh, in the same place at the same time by remarkable coincidence. That is, that is quite remarkable, although I think what was more remarkable is that you recommended that I went out there with you. <laughs> Well, I thought it'd be a great opportunity for our, the GM of this station, and I think that you now would agree. Oh, it definitely was. It definitely NPR people are some of the best people in the world. Well, I, I, they certainly are fun to hang out with. I, you attended the conference. I did not. How was it? Uh, it was it was very informative. There was a lot of talk of uh, 
investigative reporting and just building a good news department. And so there's a lot of stuff that I'm going to bring back and apply to KDVS. Excellent. Yeah. Well, for my part, I certainly found them to be a, a wonderful bunch to hang out with, too. Uh, Melanie Peebles uh, of, of, of Birmingham uh, Public Radio. She freelances down there. Great, great gal. Uh, Tanya Ott, the news director at uh, WBHM in Birmingham, Alabama. I mean, Steve Chiatakis, also W. The Alabama group. The Alabama contingent was, was quite, a, quite a great group. There was a lot of Southern and Easterners, which surprised me. We were the only, there were only two other California stations out there with us, which really surprised me. Yeah, and of course, Joe Barr from KXJZ was there. Joe wound up taking the same red eye that we found ourselves on, on JetBlue, and uh, we went and drove in with him. And we got there as they are preparing the hotel. I had a chance to walk around with Wayne Pratt uh, from uh, Public Radio WBAA in, in, in West Lafayette, Indiana. Anyway, uh, these names don't mean much to our listening audience, except that uh, you do hear uh, them from time to time if you listen to National Public Radio as they give a report from, from wherever. They're an informative bunch, and you know you definitely can learn a lot talking from them. We did swap a lot of uh, news stories and stories on the trail, you know. Good, good, and of course, so one of the one of the perks of of, of visiting them was a chance to go visit National Public Radio, uh, their um, their broadcast facilities near the Capitol, and that I, I found that I found that to be just one of the highlights of the trip. Definitely, definitely, we sat and we watched. Um, who did we watch, Doug? We watched Neil Conan do Talk of the Nation, and That's uh, you right. know, Neil Conan, I think, is the Babe Ruth of, uh, of, of, uh, of radio hosts. It was unbelievable the way he was running that show, the tight ship they were running. I could not run a show that tight, possibly. Well, I don't think very few of us could. Neil Conan is good. That's true, and then some of the interns there, I mean, uh, just what a great experience had a chance to talk to Mara Elias and Corva Coleman um, people at, at, at NPR names you hear well hopefully you know hopefully we can go to them from KDVS put a call in and and they'll be able to inform us about what's going on uh, uh, just like they do morning edition definitely that, that would be our hope now Doug I, we were on the trip and I, I, I just wanted to ask you this question kind of as a follow-up did, did you find it ironic at all that we ate at a KFC across the street from the Gettysburg Battlefield. <laughs> it did seem a little odd. During... I don't know. There was just like, a, and then like at the, the Natural History Museum at the Smithsonian, did you know that the insect exhibit was actually sponsored by Orkin? I did not know that. That does seem worse than ironic. <laughs> just a bit. Yeah, it is pretty strange to go up to Gettysburg. We drove up there and uh, inspected, well, the famous Pickett's Charge, the bloodiest, most horrible side of the battle where, you know, the, they basically mowed down Confederate forces. Not two blocks away, you do find a Kentucky Fried Chicken serving lunch to people that have just visited the battlefield. So I guess it raises the question of who really won. Well, if you look at Congress right now and you look at who's running the country, it would appear to me that the South has indeed risen again. Well, you know, Doug, I had to come back early just to, to get the station in order and stuff. But, but what did you do? You, you left me in the airport in Washington. Where'd you end up? Um, I flew to Louisville, Kentucky. actually had a chance to listen to some of the shows of people we were hanging out with. Julie Crydens uh, of Kentucky Public Radio, uh, operating out of Louisville. Uh, it's a good show. The show State of Affairs. Maybe we can get Julie to come talk to us from, uh, from, from Kentucky. Now, now, what was your take on the whole Midwest? The Midwest, I was curious as to know how the, the election is going. I was asking people, you know, how is this, how's this state going to vote? Because, of course, uh, Missouri seems to always vote with the winner. So I was asking people in the state of Missouri, and, and I, I didn't get, 
It seems like it's running very close. I missed um, John Kerry by one day in Hannibal, Hannibal, Missouri. Um, I would have liked to have seen him there, especially seen him in Missouri, because, you know, like, like they say, so as Missouri goes, so goes the nation, or I think it was said about New Hampshire, but they never seem to miss. If, if, you win, if you win the vote in Missouri, you seem to be president. It's only, it's only failed once in the last century. But, uh, you know, Kentucky, Tennessee, I got a feeling, I got a feeling that Kentucky, based on the polls, is, is, is solid Bush country. And that's kind of the feel I got. For some reason, I guess adding Edwards to the ticket has given him quite a boost in Tennessee. But, uh, you know, I really didn't conduct any kind of scientific survey. That's just talking to people in, in, in Indiana. And um, I, I don't know. Well, like, people, people usually forget, and I know you've talked about this on the show a little bit in the past, but... You know, everyone always focuses on the national polls this, the national polls that, but it really breaks down to a state-by-state, you know, survey. Well, that might be a good point for us to, again, plug plug the the, the listeners. If they want to see what's really going on, go to either mockelection.org or 270towin.com. And then if you take what the latest poll data is and start plugging it into the various states, you will see how it stacks up. And, and I still think that if you do that, it, it looks pretty good for Kerry. Uh, Zogby, I think it's John Zogby, who runs a very respected polling organization, has called the election Kerry's to lose. This is true. If you've listened to Bush lately, he seems to be running quite heavily against himself. Well, I think that actually, if the truth be told, uh, Steve, that uh, John Kerry's main uh, main ace in the hole is that he's not George W. Bush. That he seems to be running on that platform very heavily. Now, okay, have you heard about this about about people who go to Bush rallies who have to sign in loyalty oath to the president? Yes, we were talking about it earlier on the show. Yeah. Uh, how ridiculous is that? You know, I mean, I I, I find it startling. I was going to attend a George Bush um, rally in Stockton that took place last year, but I was invited in by, uh, you know, a, a certified Republican person who was, you know, was vouching for me. Doug, I'm sure they had you pegged at the door. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, I was stopped seven people uh, away from being uh, gain, gaining admittance. We got there just a little bit too late for the crowd. Yeah, you would have been the first against the wall, believe me. I did don't know why. I present no threat to our chief executive, and, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly respect the office of the presidency, if not the current occupant. Well played, Doug. Steve, one thing I did see, and as I'm talking to you and talking to our audience, so I should, should mention, I did get a chance to um, visit the courthouse in St. Louis, which is right, right underneath, literally, uh, right below right to the side of the Gateway Arch, which I was very impressed by. That's quite an architectural um, uh, feat, that, it's that arch. It's very skinny, isn't it? It's, it's very skinny. It's, it's amazing the things up there standing. There's not much room inside. You take these little elevators that take you to the top, and uh, it's, you know, there's no room for a restaurant up on top. Let's put it that way. Well, how tall is the structure? It's 630 like... feet, I believe. It's quite it's much taller than the Washington Monument. Wow. But across the street, there's a courthouse wherein um, Dred Scott, Argued his case in 1857. Dred Scott was, of course, the uh, the slave who uh, tried to sue for his freedom, claiming that he'd been taken to a free state and therefore was entitled to his freedom. And one of the most notorious uh, Supreme Court decisions in the entire history of our uh, our top court, they ruled that Dred Scott, uh, in fact, was property and didn't have any standing to sue in uh, United States courts. It's really, it's really just dreadful. Dreadful, probably the worst decision the Supreme Court's ever made. 
And this moment in history has been brought to you by Douglas Everett of Radio Parallax. <laughs> well, thank you for the plug. <laughs> I do want to note that, the, you know, what in my mind is one of the contenders for recent decisions to rank with uh, Dred Scott in terms of its uh, dreadfulness uh, would be Bush versus Gore, uh, our decision in 2000 that appointed George Bush president by a five to four margin. And we would note upcoming to McGeorge University is the man who apparently authored, um, secretly authored that uh, decision, Anthony Kennedy. is going to be coming to McGeorge University in October, and hopefully we'll be covering that event uh, for you. At least I, I hope to get in to be able to cover it uh, for our show and for our listeners. Now, what's this about Rehnquist writing a, a book? You were talking about this on the plane, I think. In the same uh, courthouse that sold the book on Dred Scott, I bought a book on, on the U.S. presidents, which is quite excellent. We'll probably refer to it in future, future programs. It summarized each president in one page and, uh, and did it very well. They talked about the election of 1876 where Rutherford Hayes became president in pretty, pretty honest terms. That election was stolen by the Republicans. Samuel Tilden won the election. He won the popular vote. And had the votes been counted honestly in the South, including Florida, he would have become president. But the Democrats and Republicans cut a deal that allowed uh, Hayes to become president by calling into doubt three different southern states that had been um, under military governorships. If you've, you know, students of American history here at Davis and elsewhere, I think are probably aware of this case. But it is, it was a rather notorious episode of electoral malfeasance. And it was curious that William Rehnquist, our current chief justice, and one of the five who put Bush in the White House, wrote a book in the past couple of years about that very election. And I don't know whether his conscience is bothering him or, or what motivated him to do that, but uh, I thought of all the elections he could have chosen to write about, isn't, isn't that interesting? Exactly. I mean, I don't think that there's any guilt here at play at all. <laughs> None, really. That would be my analysis. I don't know. I don't have the stomach to read the book myself, but I suppose I, perhaps if one of our listeners out there has read William Rehnquist's book on the 1876 election, please send us an email and your review of that, uh, of that book at info at radioparallax.com or at kdvs.org. Doug, I must say you're a pro at the plug. <laughs> All right, Steve. Well, thanks for, thanks for updating us, and I hope on your show you can talk about uh, a little bit uh, about some of the stuff that you saw as well. I plan on it. All righty. Thank you, Doug. All right, we're about out of time, so let's uh, let's get out. In our third segment, we will we're going to try and talk to uh, well either Tom Burka, our uh, our correspondent at the Boston uh, Democratic Convention, to, to update us on that, uh, and or Gary Chu to talk about the Manchurian Candidate, which has come out uh, since I was last live on the air talking to you. Maybe we'll get both. Maybe we'll get neither. We'll find out. You're listening to KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. I'm Douglas Everett, and this is Radio Parallax. Let's take a break. (laughs) 